can be seated. So we're privileged to have Dr. Chuck Lesher here. No? Burkett, sorry. Dr. Chuck Burkett here. <laughs> and his lovely wife, Juanita, with us today. He's a dear friend of Pastor John and mentor. He served in churches in Mar uh, Pennsylvania, Ohio, and Florida, correct? Yes. He's also a, a consultant on church health, uh, a Civil War buff and historian, amateur historian, yes. So you've come to the right place in Waynesboro. We have lots of Civil War history here. Um, so welcome, Dr. Chuck, to, uh, to speak with us today. I move slow, but I'm glad I get to move at all. Glad for stools, too. We'll, tell more, we'll say more about what's going on with me, but that's not particularly important, except that it fits into the sermon. Um, I've been through quite an ordeal in the last few months, um, and as I say, I'll tell you much about that, but I want to tell you about lying in a hospital bed. I'm hoping that most of us have never lied in a hospital bed. And I want to say it's not right to lie anywhere else either. So I was in this hospital bed and I was fully reclined and I was lying there. All these people would come by and ask me how I was doing and I would lie to them. <laughs> I, I think it's a guy thing. At any rate, yeah, I was in the room being prepared for surgery. Well, they took away all my clothes and all my dignity and so much more and started the IV and that sort of thing. And then they just laid there and wait for something to happen. Um, and many things did happen. But eventually, this nurse came by and while everybody else seemed to have something else on their minds, she didn't seem to have anything on her mind except me. And she looked me in the eye and she asked me how I was. And at that moment, and I think that this is a God thing, at that moment I knew that it was time to stop lying. And I told her that I was looking forward in hope to a good result from the surgery. But I was also very anxious about a surgery that they didn't know whether it would be three hours or six hours. They didn't know what all they were going to do. And who knows whether it would work or not. Now the VA has this policy, if they don't know that they're going to have an 80% success rate, they won't do the surgery. But that means you have a 20% failure rate. Not exciting. At any rate, she asked me how I was doing. And she asked in such a way that I knew that fine would not be an acceptable answer. So I told her about my anxiety. Now. She is the one responsible to wheel my bed with me on it into the operating room. And in the operating room, I've been in this room before, and there are just rows and rows of tools along the walls, and there are big, impressive lights, um, all kinds of machinery that I didn't understand, and all these people and who knows how many doctors were in that room, but there were quite a few nurses and technicians. 
It was a very capable place to be. They had a lot of experience doing this kind of surgery. They had a good success rate. And I got the impression that I was in very good hands. But I was still anxious. And I would expect this nurse who came to get me to tell me that it really didn't make sense to be anxious because I was going into a room with lots of tools, lots of technology, lots of skilled people, all that good stuff. I would expect that, but that's not what happened. What happened was she took my hand, squeezed it very hard, and said, all we can do is pray. Now, that made a lot of sense to me. And as I've been thinking about that for the past, oh, how many weeks has it been now? Not enough weeks since the surgery. But that so impressed me, and I thought that God was trying to tell me something. The people in the operating room were very capable and very professional, very well-educated. I talked to my surgeon. I think he said he took 16 years, or was going to eventually complete 16 years of training to do the surgery that he was about to do. With all that competence, I could have a good expectation of a good result. And in many ways, I did get a good result. But in one most important way, I did not. And I'll say more about that in a minute. But I want to talk this morning about why we need to pray. Why is prayer so essential? I was pleased to see all the PowerPoints and to hear all the words about prayer this morning and to see just how important prayer is to this congregation. So maybe I should write another sermon real fast. But no, we'll, we'll press on here. There are times and situations when we come to the end of ourselves. Are there not? We know that we're hopeless. We know that we're helpless. We really need God to do something. We know that it's beyond us. And it's times like that that we need to pray. But there's an even more important time to pray. And that is when we are full of confidence, full of ourselves, full of thinking that we can handle this. We've got this. We can do fine. But can we? The doctors, the nurses, all those people did fine. As I say, we'll talk more about that in a minute. But the bottom line is, they almost killed me. Well, we'll talk, I don't want to be critical of them. They're good people. As rebellious human beings, people who are naturally allergic to God, we all too easily fool ourselves into thinking that we can handle things. And if there's any excuse to not have to turn to God, chances are we'll go there and we'll try to justify that. Problem is, we're all a whole lot smaller than we think we are. We're a whole lot less awesome than we think we are. And we're all going to find ourselves up against it when we thought we could handle it, but could not. I'm struck and amused and very interested in the story of the Gibeonites. I hope all of us know about the Gibeonites. 
For those of you who don't, their story is found in Joshua chapter 9. And the details of the story are pretty simple. We've got these Israelites who've just invaded the land. They've just captured, conquered Jericho and destroyed it. They've just captured I, I, however you pronounce it, A-I, whatever. Um, they're on a roll. And all the other kings, all the other cities around this area know that they're in trouble. So they all get together and decide to form one big army to fight the Israelites. But the Gibeonites, the people from Gibeon, took a different course. They decided rather than to be as strong as they could be, they would be as deceptive as they could be. And so they got high mileage camp donkeys. They loaded them up with worn out equipment, stale bread. They go to the week old bread shop and get their supplies. They wear worn out sandals, worn out clothes. They're there to create the impression that they've traveled a very, very long way, okay? And the Israelites, when the Gibeonites arrive, they look at their stuff, they look at their animals, they look at their feet, and they think, oh yeah, they've come a long way. They're not our near neighbors. We can make a, a, a treaty with them. And I see the deal was, God said, don't make any treaties with the people in your land. But these people were in their land. And so they decided they needed to fool the Israelites. And of course, the Israelites had the means to call on God, but chose not to. And consequently, they were fooled. The Gibeonites got what they wanted. They got a treaty and an agreement of peace. And the truth is, that cost the Israelites dearly for years that they had made that foolish decision to handle this on their own rather than to call out to God. So at what point do we need to call out to God? I think that, yeah, any point, especially when we think we can handle this, when we, at, at any point when we think we really don't need God, that's the point where we need to be crying out. There are times when things seem so clear and so obvious, and we can make a good decision. Just like when the Gibeonites showed up with these high-mileage donkeys and all their other stuff. Ah, how many of us have been there? I'm not going to ask for a show of hands. I'll, I'll raise my hand. How many of us have been there? The text I want to look at this morning, John 15, verses 4 and 5, where Jesus tells us, apart from me, you can do nothing. Apart from me, you can do nothing. Let me read this passage for you. John 15, verses 4 and 5. I'm reading from the NIV, I think. Remain in me, as I also remain in you. No branch can bear fruit by itself. It must remain in the vine. Neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me. I am the vine. You are the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. Apart from me, 
you can do nothing. Now let me give you a little context here. That Last Supper has just happened. Judas has disappeared into the night to go find the high priests and to betray Jesus. Jesus takes the disciples out to the garden where he's going to pray and where they're going to fall asleep. I wonder if they had no idea what was about to happen. So Jesus told them to pray, but they couldn't see the point. So they made their own decision that they would fall asleep or at least not pay attention to their prayers. I don't know. But the point is, yeah, Jesus is here alone praying. That's where he's going. Now he's in transit. They're all in transit. Um, as I say, the last supper has just happened. And on this journey from one to the other, he does a little bit more teaching. And he seems to be, in my opinion, a little bit more clear, a little less ambiguous. Jesus seemed to teach in such a way that it would provoke a lot of thought, but it would also often require a bit of explanation. This time, the explanation came with his teachings. And he taught about the vine and the branches. And I think every uh, person in this part of the world understood, and probably a lot of us understood, on a vine, vine you have branches which bear grapes, if it's a grapevine, okay. Um, if you cut the branches off from the grapevine, it's not going to produce very much. So it's not going to bear anything at all. The uh, wood or the sticks or whatever you want to call the branches are useless for anything. There was a law in Israel that everybody should bring wood to the temple regularly as an offering to God so that it could be used for whatever purpose the temple needed wood. It was forbidden to bring the wood of grapevines because it was so poor and so useless when it was cut off. Its only function in the world was to make grapes. So that's where we are. And Jesus is saying what appears to, what should be obvious you have to, the branch has to remain connected to the vine if it's going to be productive. So that should be obvious that if a grape is going to be produced, it has to be connected to the source, not just to the intermediary, the branch. But I think, in fact, I think it's sad as I observe this many times in life. It's too easy for us as God's people to forget that we need to stay connected, that we need to be connected to Christ if we're going to produce anything. The fact is, we can produce an awful lot, but are we really producing the fruit that God wants? Now, there are two key words in this passage, and I want to talk about them both here. The first one is remain. We need to remain. We need to abide. We need to live there. Um, some translations have we need to abide. Some have that we need to be connected to Jesus. We can't allow ourselves to be cut off. Well, it's interesting to me, you can be cut off and then grafted back in. 
I don't know if we have any uh, vintners here. I don't know if it's true of grapevines, but I know for a lot of plants, including apple trees, I used to pastor right over at Iron Springs, and we had orchardists there who told me that you could take the bad, you, you could take the good branches off a tree and graft them into a bad tree, and it would produce good apples. I don't know that you can do that with grapevines, but the point is there needs to be a connection. And there needs to be a connection that develops and heals, and you just can't graft them in and expect you're going to see grapes in a month. It might take years. So let's move along here. There's this issue of receiving nutrients, receiving whatever is necessary to produce the grape through the branch, but from the vine. And so that's why the uh, connection here is so important. So we find whatever it takes to keep you connected to Jesus is essential if you're going to produce fruit, if you're going to produce the kind of fruit that God wants you to produce. Um, we find Jesus often praying to keep himself connected to the Father. And so it makes sense that if we want to be connected to Jesus, we need to be people of prayer. Connection, when we're talking about people, whether the, the divine or whether the merely human, connection requires conversation. And so we need to be people willing to go to God, to talk to him and to listen to him. Well, there's another word here too, and that word is fruit. Now, this one isn't easy. It's pretty easy that Jesus is using the illustration of grapes. If you want to produce grapes, you've got to be connected to the vine. You can't just go on your own and expect to, to produce grapes. That's pretty simple. But when it comes to us, what does Jesus expect us to produce? Now, if you read in Paul, he'll tell you about the fruits of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience. Um, when I was studying spiritual gifts, I think we discovered different scholars have as many as seven or eight different lists in the New Testament of what they considered to be spiritual gifts. There's a lot of options for what God might want to produce in us. And if you go further into the scriptures in different directions, you'll find that the fruit, where's my list here, um, includes people we bring to Christ, the disciples that we make. They count as being fruit. Don't press me for which verse it says that, but anybody who is an evangelist will be sure that it's there and will probably know. Um, but I know when I was studying this and I forgot to write it down, winning souls is bearing fruit for the kingdom. But on the other hand, holiness, the personal ability to live a victorious life, is a fruit of the Spirit. It's something that we can expect to see if we're connected to Christ. It's something that we can expect to see grow. So there's, there's a bunch of these. I think I counted seven or eight when I was looking into this this week. There are a couple of different items there, but one thing they all, they all share together they are all things that happen because of the Holy Spirit's work in the believer's life. Everyone. 
So rather than try to dig out exactly what, which specifically Jesus is referring to, I don't want to get into, into that discussion. But they all have to do with being connected to God. They all have to do with being yielded to what God's Spirit is trying to do in us. So if you want to please Jesus with your life, if you want his will worked out in your life, then you must stay connected. And if you do, you can expect to see real change happening as a result. Now, let me tell you a horrible story. I hate this story. I tell it all the time, but it's important. Okay, there was a Chinese Christian who came to America. And he came, I don't know why he came, I heard this story third hand, but I've heard it from other people, so I suspect it's very legitimate. He came to America, and he observed the American church and what was going on in the American church. And he was pleased to be able to do this. But then he returned to China, and his fellow believers there asked him what was most impressive about the American Christians. And he said, it's amazing how much the American Christians can do without God. How's that for a scary thought? The church is very good at spending money, making noise, keeping people moving, but are we really producing God's fruit? And that, I think, is a vitally important question. Um, whatever we can do on our own without God may be very impressive, but is it really what God wants? That's a vital question. Um, as I think about that, I think of Matthew seven twenty one, where Jesus tells us not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name drive out demons and in your name perform many miracles? Then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. Evil doing can look like a great ministry. If a church is prophesying, casting out demons, doing signs and wonders, people will beat, their, beat a path to that church's door looking for God. Now, I want to be very clear about this. Jesus prophesied, cast out demons, and did signs and wonders. The issue is not those three items. The issue is they're not connected to Jesus. Now, we can get into a lengthy debate. How on earth are they doing these things if they're not connected to Jesus? I don't know. Don't debate me. Don't debate somebody who's smart. But, yeah, legitimately, God's people prophesy, and I believe that casting out demons is within our ministries, and certainly signs and wonders. I think we've all seen them. I certainly have. But that's not the problem. The problem of disconnected, being disconnected 
makes these people unworthy. It makes what they're doing evil. Something for us to take seriously. What on earth does God want of us? We may not know. We may not have a clear idea. But I dare say the way to find out is to ask him. To pray to him. To look to him. To speak to us. And to show us the way. And to give us the direction that we, 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 we need. All we can do is pray. We can do a whole lot that will never count. But we can pray. And we can trust God to give us the direction that we need to build his kingdom and to strengthen his things. Now, this statement, all we can do is pray, it would be enough, or should be enough, if it only happened once. Now, I lost the whole summer to back pain, to surgery, to complications. My complications had complications. Okay. This nurse came in and said, all we can do is pray. But a couple weeks before, I was in the hospital being evaluated for surgery and um, all that sort of thing. And they had to, well, it's a long story. Um, but in the midst of that first hospitalization, one of the cleaning ladies came into my room. And she just was the picture of a cleaning lady who was way, way overworked and tired and had to sit down. So she sat down in my chair in my room and she began talking to me. And pretty soon the talking became a sermon. And a lot of you are smiling. You can already guess what the topic was. Casting all our cares upon him, praying to him and trusting in him because he is so abundantly able beyond what we are. I loved it. I loved sitting there and listening to her. It's interesting, she was only there once. Now the room got cleaned, and I don't know if she was an angel sent by God, but at any rate, yeah, it was cool. I think there was a God thing going on here. But then I went into the surgery eventually, um, got told all we can do is pray, went through the surgery, and the surgery seemed to have gone well. Everybody thought that I was ready to go home on Friday. The surgery happened on a Tuesday. I went home on Friday. My wife was a little concerned that I'm going home too early, and that happens a lot. Um, I went home Friday. Sunday, I passed out. The uh, people from the ambulance thought I either had a heart attack or what did they say, a pulmonary embolism? Pulmonary embolism is when a clot gets loose, a blood clot gets loose and ends up in your brain somewhere and does something bad. Some people seem to know what it's all about. Uh, when I got to the hospital down in Washington, they told me people die from these things every day. Now, the surgery seemed to have gone well, but they did something that seems to have made that happen. And it wasn't intentional. They were not foolish people who didn't know how to do these surgeries. The bottom line is, all we can do is pray. They could do a lot, but they couldn't do enough. They could figure out a lot, but they couldn't figure out enough. 
and it almost killed me. I think I really needed to pray. I could look at all those machines and all those technicians and all those doctors and I could have great confidence, but I could not have full confidence. I needed to put myself in God's hands. And so I was glad when this nurse came in and said, all we can do is pray. But that was before all this. After all this, I had been in the hospital for about a week and they were trying to deal with all the blood clots in my body. I was a mess. My pastor came home, told Juanita, I thought he was going to die when he came down to visit me. But I was there in the hospital for about a week, and physical therapy arrived. And physical therapy wanted to find out how I was doing. It was the first visit. She was going to assess how I was doing, what my needs were. And when she asked me how I was doing, it was just like that nurse who wanted to know, who really wanted to know. And I knew, couldn't lie to her either. So I told her about my anxiety, about the, well, she knew about the embolism and all that. She knew about all the blood clots in my lungs. Um, and she was about to launch me into a program of physical therapy to help me along. But when I told her about my anxiety, she did not tell me about all that. She, too, took my hands, just like the first, they must teach this in nursing school now, took my hands, squeezed it very hard, and said, all we can do is pray. And then she prayed for me. And then there was the uh, cleaning man who came in. He preached a sermon of at least 20 minutes. You've got to put yourself in God's hands. These people are great. They're very skilled. But you've got to trust in God. And then there was the next cleaning man. Now, I was talking to somebody who had finally learned that God really is our source, no matter how skilled the doctor is. And it took him two heart attacks to learn this. Now, I only had one embolism, but I had three sermons and two declarations. You've got to trust in God. And that's true. I really believe it. Um, there is a lot that we can do, but we can't do enough. We can't produce fruit. We cannot stay connected on our own. All we can do is pray. Is there ever a time when we didn't need to trust in God? Think about that. When do we not need to trust? How many people get up in the morning and they think they're going to just have a normal day and then they get in a car crash or something bad happens? And I had lunch with a couple of guys when I was in rehab and they both had strokes and they both were surprised that they had strokes. They never thought they were candidates for strokes. And here they were. And I never thought my back was going to go bad and I'd need a major surgery and I'd need to lose the whole summer to surgery and hospitalizations. It happens. And when it does, are we ever ready? But we know that God is able beyond anything we can ask or imagine. God is able. 
we can be very strongly tempted to rely on ourselves and on our own wisdom and on our own judgment. But it's never going to be enough. We need to decide to rely on God, first and foremost, always. If we love God, we're going to want to produce fruit. But that only happens as we stay connected. And Jesus tells us, apart from him, we can't do anything. So my challenge, stay connected. All you can do that really counts is pray. So do that. Let's pray together. Father, we're grateful to you for your unfailing love for us, despite who we are, despite what our failures, whatever our shortcomings may be, whatever our weaknesses and limitations. And also, no matter what our strengths may be, whatever our abilities may be, Father, we all need your grace to touch our lives and to bring about the fruit that you want to see in our lives. So we look to you for that, Father. Teach us to pray. Teach us to trust in you, no matter what may entice us away. We pray it in Christ's name.